0: So you can't just click your fingers, come up with all that power, all that infrastructure. And what the end result is, is incumbent miners earn these super profits when Bitcoin rallies. Because if you've got that hash rate, that hash rate is so hard to get, so hard to bring online, then you're a beneficiary of that because as the price goes up, it's really hard for other people to enter and cannibalize that Bitcoin reward.
1: Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Blockware Intelligence Podcast. This week, I have on Dan Roberts from Iris Energy. Dan, welcome.
0: Thanks, Joe.
1: Pleasure to be here. Awesome. Dan, for those that may not know who you are, I want to dive into what was your career background before Bitcoin and how did that lead you into the Bitcoin mining industry? So we
0: first—I uh, say we—my brother Will and I are obviously the co-founders of Iris. We first came across Bitcoin probably late 2013, uh, bought high, sold low, and high at that stage was you know eight hundred, a thousand um, dollars. And times change, but in terms of our traditional careers, my background was initially investment banking, and then very much infrastructure development. Um, so spent time across Australia and Europe developing renewable energy projects, so wind, solar, etc. And then about 10, 11 years ago, jumped out of Macquarie Bank, the Australian Investment Bank where I was doing that and helped set up an infrastructure funds management business based out of Sydney. And it was right place, right time. We grew to around 6 billion of infrastructure assets under management. Um, these are ports, airports, wind farms, solar farms, gas pipelines, and basically deploying long-dated pension fund, insurance company type money into these long-dated assets. So we buy the asset, we devise a business plan, appoint management, and basically oversee the investments in these assets. Um, in parallel, my brother and co-founder, Will, he was also at Macquarie, the Australian Investment Bank, um, doing more traditional mining uh, finance, so debt credit instruments hedge in into gold, copper, iron ore, etc. And I guess if you triangulate the Bitcoin common interest, the mining background of Will and the infrastructure background of myself, you can start seeing how we put the pieces together.
1: Nice, I like it. I'm curious, how would you compare what you guys are doing at Irish, Iris Energy compared to you know, the other publicly traded Bitcoin miners?
0: Yeah, look, then there's a few of them. Um, and everyone's got a slightly different approach, um, which is good. You know, for capital markets, that's what you want as an investor. You want choice and you want variety and it's an emerging sector and different strategies will pay different dividends over time. But we very much, I guess, brought our institutional backgrounds and sought to overlay that experience into this new emerging sector um, and risk first. It goes to everything that we do it's planned for the worst it's hoped for the best like our simple mentality is the upside is there you're on the right side of this exponential tailwind being bitcoin as the world starts to understand appreciate what it is just don't stuff it up don't take risk so If you use that as your lens, like every contract we sign, we make sure we've read really carefully. We don't do hosting agreements where our destiny is other people's hands. We don't do short-term leases. We own and control all the infrastructure, the land. We directly interface with the power markets. Um, We build multi-decade infrastructure, so we don't use old abandoned warehouses. We don't use temporary shipping containers. Um, We're really building a multi-decade platform, because we believe in Bitcoin, we believe it's here to stay. And really, as long as you build a really solid foundation, then you're very much likely to do well.
1: Yeah, I think owning and operating your own facilities like you guys are doing seems like a great way to reduce counterparty risk, and also seems to generally complement kind of the Bitcoin ethos of being sovereign and not having to depend on others. Can you expand more on maybe like why and how you guys are going about operating your own facilities
0: yeah and look it involves a lot of people we've got over 100 people globally now it's a fantastic team Um, you need 10 to 15 people per site um, for you know roughly a 50 megawatt site and there's scale benefits as you scale up beyond that but in terms of how we went about that from a grassroots level A lot of our backgrounds are in infrastructure renewables development, as I mentioned. I think the board and management team has collectively developed and built over $25 billion of infrastructure projects. And while a port and an airport and a gas pipeline, a wind farm, a solar farm, they they all sound very different. There is a common thread there where it's a real asset. So first of all, if you're looking to develop a new mining farm, where are you going to do it? So you start with a screen. What sort of jurisdictions you're looking for? what sort of weather environment, what sort of power market, etc. and very quickly you filter through those, you land on your target jurisdictions. Well, now you've got to find the power. Does the power exist? Is it compatible with our strategy? And then you're door knocking on local farmers to option up some of their land near a grid connection, you're negotiating with the utility for months, and then ultimately you're engaging design and uh, D&C contractors um, to help build the facilities, Um, So it's very much a traditional infrastructure lens that we've approached it through, and it really revolves around for us, where can we procure power that is 100% renewable and the use of that energy is not conflicting with the market objectives in that jurisdiction. So our use of power can't be seen or can't actually push up power prices. It can't take power away from other users. And we can debate all day whether it's right or wrong, that Bitcoin's energy consumption gets so much heat, but it does, and that's a reality, work with it. So we make sure that we're using excess renewable energy and targeting markets and local regions where we can do that.
1: Yeah, since you have this you know, deep background in, in energy, do you think it's possible, I know some people like to argue, as you were mentioning, that Bitcoin mining could potentially increase power prices for consumers. But is there like an argument potentially that Bitcoin mining is actually like decreasing power prices for consumers by taking on, you know, excess energy from power producers? Look, it it
0: is in the sense that it's a bit more nuanced. It's a time of day production and it's around the intermittency of renewables. And what you see in a lot of these Western jurisdictions, they've seen this heavy penetration of intermittent renewables because you've had supply side government policies, just pushing wind and solar onto the grids, not only in the absence of no price signal, but fall in demand. You know, manufacturing industry has been hollowed out. Build out of residential rooftop solar um, is reducing net retail demand. And what this has created is this enormous volatility in these deregulated markets, where sometimes you'll be paying a really, really high power price when the wind doesn't blow when the sun doesn't shine, when there's a weather event or some sort of shock, then the market has lost that resilience to cope with that. And what that does, it's only a relatively small number of time periods, so call it 2%, 5% of the year, where power prices really spike incredibly high. But it spikes so high that pulls up the entire average power price for that market to a really you know, uncomfortable level, which is what a retail customer pays. So if you've got a load that can come in there, mop up that cheap power when the wind does blow, when the sun does shine, negative power prices, etc., and then give the power back during high time periods, then all of a sudden you can lower the average cost to consumers exactly as you've outlined.
1: Awesome, yeah, I think that's a fantastic point. I saw uh, Iris Energy has sites in in Canada and now one in Texas under construction. How did you go about picking those specific geographic regions uh, specifically?
0: Um, Look, at the end of the day, it was that risk lens. So at the time, there were a lot of people chasing power in China, uh, Iran, Venezuela. But for us, and there was an interesting um, graphic that we saw at the time, just trawling the internet, where it had the top five gold uh, nations. One on the left-hand side was uh, production, on the right-hand side was cost per ounce. And cost per ounce, you saw um, all these different nations around the world, but the volume was dictated by the big guys like Canada, US, Australia, because that's where capital flows, because of the risk profile. So for us, it was obvious. We needed to go into a Western bankable jurisdiction, just given the nature of the business that we were setting up, and it needed to be renewables-based. So you look at British Columbia, 98% of that network is renewable, predominantly hydro. Like that is one of the highest, if not the highest in the world that you will find. We get to 100% uh, via buying a couple of percent of renewable energy certificates. In Texas... Up in the Panhandle region where we're located, there's around 32 gigawatts of wind and solar projects. And the transmission line is only 12 gigawatts to export that down to the load centers in the Southeast, so Dallas and Houston. So for us, it was really about targeting that heavy penetration of renewables, but also having the right rule of law, the right business environment to actually build a multi-decade project.
1: Nice. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I'm curious to learn more about your treasury strategy. Like, what are you guys doing with the Bitcoin that you're mining now? I know a lot of miners have had a very troubling 2022, which is totally fair given all of the market conditions. But how are you guys managing, you know, the Bitcoin that you're mining?
0: Yeah, it was a challenge in 2022. Uh, bring on 2023. The um, look, it's always been the same for us. Like, our competitive advantage is not hodling Bitcoin in a bottom drawer as a business. Now, personally, yeah, I love Bitcoin. You know, I'd prefer to put a chunk of my savings in that than than other currencies. But from a business perspective, it hasn't made sense in our eyes for a few reasons. One, why are investors paying us to hold Bitcoin? Like, if, if that's the best use of capital, then why not distribute that cash back to investors and allow them to buy it themselves, cold storage it, make that investment decision. For us, it's a discrete investment decision that is separate to an operational business, which is Bitcoin mining. Second of all, you're doubling down on risk. Yes, it's great when we're in a bull market, everyone's going to the moon, and your p ls going up, your balance sheet's going up. But as we've seen, on the way down, it works in reverse. Not only are you getting hit on your profit, but you're now getting hit on your balance sheet. And then the compounds, if you've borrowed capital cash, or debt against that Bitcoin and your margin called, or you're forced to sell it um, because you need the capital to fund OPEX or residual CAPEX, then all of a sudden, not only have you unwound the ability to sell it um, to sell at that higher price, you're now forced to sell um, at a time in the market where you know most players in this industry would, would not be happy to. So for us, it's never really made that much sense. And I think also from our perspective is, Our only constraint is capital. We've got sites, we've got our data center design, we've got the ability to build out hundreds of megawatts of this infrastructure. It is only capital. And when the return on investment of every marginal dollar that you have is so high, then I believe that the best compounding strategy for investors in terms of Bitcoin exposure is to continue to reinvest in additional mining capacity. Even in the current market, what people don't understand is There's a natural CapEx hedge in this sector. Yeah, when Bitcoin was high last year, hardware prices are trading at $60, $70, $80 a terahash. So it's expensive, but there's lots of money. Share prices are high. Share prices are low. Bitcoin price is low today, but so is the hardware. You can get it for some $20 a terahash. So your return on investment is still attractive, even at the bottom of the market by virtue of that quite unique CapEx hedge.
1: Yeah, I think that was a very interesting point. You have a great slide in in one of your investor presentations about how now it's real world infrastructure that's kind of the key barrier to entry in the Bitcoin mining space. And there's kind of this natural lag between the price of Bitcoin and like hash rate and mining difficulty. Can you expand on this idea that you guys talk about a lot?
0: And this was actually central to uh, Will and I deciding to set up this business and four know, four Four and a half years ago, we termed it the hash rate lag effect, and it refers to the fact that every Bitcoin cycle, it is getting longer and harder for the hash rate to keep pace with the Bitcoin price. And if you st- look go back a decade when people are mining on their computers and laptops, Bitcoin goes on a run. People can just switch on more laptops and computers, go down to your local store, plug them in your parents' basement, hash rate goes up, and uh, mining profitability normalises. But every cycle, it got longer and longer for that hash rate to keep pace with the price. And that was down to the absolute amount of real-world infrastructure. The real world has limits. You can't scale exponentially indefinitely in the real world. In the digital world, you can. We've seen it everywhere. The whole world's going online. The whole world's being digitised. We understand the exponential function in cyberspace. But when it comes to the real world, there are real limits. You know, there are limits around how many megawatts are available. There are limits around capital formation. There are limits around how quickly you can actually connect into a power network. In some jurisdictions, it can take three to five years from concept to actually getting that power. Um, back in the last bull run, which was the back end of 2017, 2018, when Bitcoin ran up to $19, twenty $20,000, if you look at that cycle, It wasn't until September of 2018, so nine months after the end of the bull market, that the hash rate caught the price and normalized mining profitability. And that was after the price fell 70%. So you kind of extrapolate that going forward. And another way to think about it is, anecdotally, there's kind of eight gigawatts, give or take, of power dedicated to Bitcoin. Now, Bitcoin... And unfortunately, this requires people to take a view on Bitcoin. It's the nature of the sector. But if you look at Bitcoin, in my view, it's not a $17,000 asset. Like gold parity alone, and as gold 2.0, it's clearly better than being gold. At gold parity, it's $600,000 a coin. So if Bitcoin hangs around, it's not staying at $17,000. If Bitcoin goes back to even to $60,000, let's call it a 4x increase, to 4x the current power consumption of 8 gigawatts is another 24 gigawatts of power. Now, for a lot of people on listening to this, that might sound abstract. What does that actually mean? Well, one reference point, the entire global data center industry is only 23. So you can't just click your fingers, come up with all that power, all that infrastructure. And what the end result is, is incumbent miners earn these super profits when Bitcoin rallies because if you've got that hash rate, that hash rate is so hard to get, so hard to bring online, then you're a beneficiary of that because as the price goes up, it's really hard for other people to enter and cannibalize that Bitcoin reward.
1: Yeah, I think that was very well said. At Blockware, we definitely have a similar thesis on the profits for incumbent miners. When there is another bull cycle, will continue to be massive and the lag between deploying more hash rate is is going to be longer and yeah it's interesting to think about how hey even if bitcoin if somehow bitcoin becomes gold 2.0 and it's an actually a six hundred thousand dollar asset that's a lot of power that's going to need to come online even if it's you know sometime after the next halving that's still a ton of new bitcoin that are being mined and someone's going to be mining them so i think you made some fantastic points there um what's it like running a, a publicly traded bitcoin mining company i mean I know you, you've been involved somewhat with the Bitcoin space for quite some time, so you're you know that it's volatile. But did you expect this much volatility? You know, going into 2022,
0: absolutely not. Um, look, if you could script your first 12 months uh, running a public company, you wouldn't have written it this down. Um, wowee! It was um, it, it was a year that threw everything at us. Um, I think we've responded accordingly. We've Fought. It's been tough, um, but we've come out the other end. Um, we're feeling really optimistic about the business. We've assembled a great group of people. You know, 160, soon to be 180 megawatts of what we think is industry-leading infrastructure, and we're in a really good position heading into the next cycle. Um, would you stay? Re- prefer to stay private? Would you have preferred to stay different? Look, at the end of the day, we are where we are. Um, we happen to list near the top of the market. You know, you'd love to say that that's deliberate, but it's not. Like you, you just you, you're building a business. You need capital. The best pathway to capital in this sector remains um, the listed market. And um, you know, once the market turns, we're, um, you know, we feel like we're in a good spot.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And um, your mining facilities in Canada and to be Texas. Which mining rigs do you run? Do you guys prefer to run like XPs, like top of the line, you know, most efficient machines, or are you more towards like the S19, like J-Pro? Or, and how do you think about, you know, which rigs you want to run at your facilities?
0: Yeah, and it's a it's a dynamic decision that we consider every day. So we signed a 10X hash contract contract, um, 18 months ago with Bitmain, which at the time was the largest um, order in the history of the sector, and that was for the S19J Pros, uh, 29.5 watts per terahash. I think everything outside of that has largely been in the 30s, even the 40 watts per terahash, and then the XPs is obviously substantially below that again. Um, we're also in a fortunate position where we've got a competitive power price, um, we're not exposed. Um, to these commodity price inflation or decarbonisation objectives because we've targeted 100% renewables from the outset. And in terms of underlying power price, marginal price renewables almost by definition is the cheapest power that you can get. And the reason I'm explaining that is it's really important. Efficiency and your power price goes to where you sit on the cost curve. So if you've got free power, it doesn't matter what efficiency you use you're always going to be generating hash, you're always going to be happy. Um, But if you've got a higher power price, you're going to be more inclined to use the XPs. So the decision between XPs and pros really comes back to um, the conversation around, well, how much downside protection do you want um, through lowering your position in the cost curve and what is that going to cost you? Because the capital differential is enormous. If you go onto Bitmain's website at the moment, you'll see um, their retail pricing for XPs is forty six dollars a terahash. For S nineteen J pros, it's nineteen fifty. So yeah, there's, there's pros and cons. There's no right or wrong answer, um, but it's a it's a very much front of mind as we enter this next phase.
1: Yeah, definitely. It seems like the XPs, you know, have that kind of downside protection built in, and then the pros are a lot cheaper, uh, but the potential cash flows could be a little more tight depending on your power costs, like like you said. Do you guys have like a weighted average like dollars per kilowatt rate that you guys are paying it at your locations, or how do you think about that, or, or how do you analyze you know what you're paying for power?
0: Yeah, we've got a fixed price, 24-7, 365 days a year. It's a regulated market um, in US dollar terms, because it's a Canadian site. It's roughly 4.6 cents um, a kilowatt hour today. And that's the same price, um, day and night all year. And then around April, I think that resets and historically might move one or 2% up or down.
1: Awesome. Very cool. I'm curious, kind of going back on the idea of, of what rigs you're, you're running How are you thinking about the 2024 halving coming up? You know, it is 2023 now, and uh, we are inching closer and closer to another uh, block subsidy halving. How are you guys thinking about that or or preparing for that at all? Yeah,
0: and on one hand, it's super exciting. As we know, halving events, um, the world still doesn't quite appreciate. It's really hard to price in that supply shock where across the space of a 10 minute block, half the supply and the flow is just taken away. Um, so we all know that three, six, nine months after that, your you know, history says that you enter a new phase of the market in terms of upside. But again, you've got to plan for the worst, um, hope for the best. So in terms of our planning for that, that is absolutely already front of mind. Yes, it's you know, 15, 18 months away, um, but working through hardware options, um, the pros versus the XPs, um, working through um, how you actually operate the hardware because you can underclock these machines to increase the efficiency. So while the nameplate efficiency of the pros might be 29.5 watts per terahash, it's actually quite easy to get that lower just by throttling the frequency of the chips. So you've got this dynamic trade-off between absolute output of hash rate and how much energy is required to produce that unit of hash rate. And an analogy that I've used from time to time is, it's a bit like your car. If you get into your car and you put your foot to the floor, you're going to be using a lot of miles to the gallon, but you're going to be going really, really fast. And there are periods in the market where that may make sense. Um, But if you need to increase your efficiency because the market is against you, then by releasing your foot off the throttle, slowing down, your energy efficiency is going to increase rapidly. So it's a dynamic, uh, multi-faceted decision-making process and something we're going through at the moment.
1: Yeah, definitely. I know the S19 series, that, that new cool firmware that they Bitmain released about kind of like underclocking your machine and becoming more efficient, super fascinating and, and a great bear market strategy if we're pressed uh, uh, for profitability, for sure. I'm curious, Joe, how other, do you guys, Oh yeah, sorry, go
0: ahead. I was just going to say, the, the other thing to think of, and it's really hard, but is the cost curve. And there's a whole game theory approach to this as well, because people don't, tend to upgrade their hardware to new efficiency unless Bitcoin's in a bull run because the capital doesn't exist, it's expensive, etc. Like one X a hash of XP's based on that Bitmain pricing I mentioned is $46 million. Like that capital doesn't really exist um, abundantly in the sector at the moment. So very few people are buying XP's. So it kind of goes to a game theory because when that halving occurs, it comes down to where's your efficiency versus others. And I think if you've got 100% pros, you're probably still at the bottom um, in terms of, well, depending on how you look at it, you're at one of the highest efficiency miners in that cost curve. And if you've got a competitive power price, then what the game theory emerges because anyone with a higher power price and slightly worse efficiency is going to have to switch off before you. And what that means is your share of the Bitcoin goes up as they switch off because the global network difficulty drops. So it may be the case, and that requires taking a bit of a view, um, but everything's about taking a view. And it's hard because that cost curve is not as transparent as other industries. It's not like the aluminium smelting industry, where you can go and engage third-party consultants. They build you up a cash cost curve, quartile by quartile, facility by facility. But what you can see historically um, is evidence of where that cost curve sits, you can see when mining profitability gets to a certain level, the global hash rate drops, indicative of people switching off. In the last bull run, that was so post 2018, that was around five and a half, six cents a kilowatt hour, which happened to correspond with industry hosting rates at that time. Interestingly this time, as we saw recently, as soon as S19J Pro profitability hit that kind of seven and a half, eight cents a kilowatt hour, you saw a big chunk of the hash rate come offline. Now, again, it's really hard to work through the noise to get to the pure signal, but directionally you can see that, and you know that hosting rates in this cycle have been seven and a half, eight cents or even higher. So you can start to piece together some sort of view around what might happen.
1: Yeah, I think that's a fantastic point. It's almost like if you... Can have can be somewhat confident that you're one of the better half of of all bitcoin miners you kind of have this natural downside protection in bitcoin mining as the mining difficulty would drop and you know your competitors are going to get wrecked before you get wrecked i guess <laughs> here's a quick message from our sponsor being involved in bitcoin means you value freedom financial freedom freedom to save and freedom to spin Privacy, digital security, and no internet tracking logs are critical in the information age today. NordVPN is my favorite VPN service. It's fast, secure, and offers 5,500 secure servers in 59 countries. You can connect to any one of them and enjoy your favorite content no matter where you are. They've also doubled down on keeping you safe with their new threat protection feature. Say goodbye to intrusive website ads and malware. Even if you download an infected file, threat protection kicks in and deletes it before it makes a mess of your computer. The best part about this sponsorship, there's literally no risk with their 30-day money-back guarantee. Give it a try, and if you like it, great. If you don't, they'll issue a refund, and you can pretend the entire situation never even happened. Check out our link, nordvpn.com blockware, to get your subscription started today. So I think that's a fantastic point. Um, how are you guys thinking about Bitcoin transaction fees in the future? I know if Bitcoin adoption continues to grow, it seems likely that we'll see the price go up. Um, you know scaling solutions are there, but it still seems like a lot of people are gonna demand final settlement on the base layer of Bitcoin. So I think there's reason to believe that Bitcoin transaction fees are gonna you know continue to go up over time most likely. How are you guys thinking about that?
0: yeah look it's it's not something you necessarily. Um, price into your day-to-day decision making, but it more comes up in the long-term view of the sector and sustainability of mining, where people say, "Well, if the block reward halves every four years, then how do you have a long-term business?" And I can digress and go down the high-performance computing route, um, which you know is real. We signed an MOU with Dell Computing a few years ago, um, but I don't actually believe that. Like mining. So first of all, Bitcoin mining is fundamental to Bitcoin. If you haven't got an incentive for miners and you haven't got the security, there is no Bitcoin. And given it's a software and a protocol that can change, I know Bitcoiners will hate hearing this, but if worse came to worse, you would have to change the protocol to give that security to it because without it, you don't have Bitcoin. Now, in reality, I don't think you need to do that. To assume that Bitcoin survives as an exponential digital technology, but no one uses it, is mentally incongruent. And if you want to draw an analogue, let's take the SWIFT network. So Bitcoin is an open global settlement network. If it one day took just 1% of SWIFT volumes, and then every transaction had an average fee of around two to three basis points, You would replace the entire equivalent of the block subsidy today so in my mind it's a non-issue if bitcoin survives you can't assume no one's using it it doesn't work that way
1: totally and yeah i definitely see a situation where it's not just one percent of the total transaction volume of on swift i think it could be a lot more than that um so yeah i think it's very reasonable to be bullish on on obviously bitcoin and transaction fees in the future as well it makes a lot of sense
0: and um, I think to address also your um, your comment around second layers and efficiencies, et cetera, um, there, there's a concept called, the paradox called Jevons paradox, J-E-V-O-N-S, and I believe it was initially describing um, coal and how technology allowed coal to be used more efficiently to produce energy, and everyone was concerned, oh, well, that's going to result in less coal being used. But because the efficiency increased, and the falling cost, effectively, of the energy produced, it actually increased the use of coal rather than decreased. So if you look at these second-layer solutions, if people come up with more efficient ways to use block space, second layers, other use cases on top, then Jevons' paradox suggests that that's going to increase block space at the base layer to help fuel that uh, scaling procedure above it.
1: Yeah, absolutely. There's a lot of reasons to be bullish on, on, on people transacting on, on base layer Bitcoin and efficiently using that, that block space and paying for it as well, because um, it's probably going to be pretty scarce and, and pretty competitive as Bitcoin adoption goes from you know, arguably less than 1% of the world to everybody. <laughs> um, it's, also a, um,
0: it's also a really interesting um, demand supply dynamic. So if you look at the economics of block space, it's fascinating because let's let's say there's a megabyte worth of data. I know it's far more complex, but just for illustrative purposes, if you've got transactions that aggregate to less than one megabyte, there's no fee pressure because you know you're going to get processed really quickly. So up until a megabyte, transaction fees are relatively low. But as soon as you get one transaction pushing the block space or the demand for block space above one megabyte, all of a sudden people are having to compete. So you've got this really interesting um, fee proposition where under a megabyte of aggregate demand on average, fees remain very low, but as soon as there's some activity in the market and demand for block space exceeds that cap, all of a sudden you see a fee market roar into action and you see um, fees explode.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I mean, you can go back and look at some of the blocks back in 2017 and and even, I'm sure, 2021, and some of the blocks had 10 Bitcoins worth of transaction fees just because of exactly like you're talking about. There's only so much space, and if you're willing or if you need a confirmation quick when you're trying to send a Bitcoin transaction, it makes a lot of sense to – you got to outbid everybody, and everyone's outbidding each other. So, I think you made some some great points there. Um, Do you have any perspective on, like, what's going on from a a macro situation. We have like, you know, the Federal Reserve raising interest rates. We have, uh, you know, not much, I guess, fiscal stimulus per se, like, you know, trying to push up asset prices. Um, Do you have a view on on that at all?
0: Look, as Will uh, says from time to time, uh, only monkeys pick bottoms. Um, It's really hard to know where we're at. It feels like there's been a lot of carnage. I think in terms of the macro, we it does feel like we're in un, unprecedented waters. I think what draws us to Bitcoin collectively is a bit of an understanding around monetary history, an understanding that since 1970, we've been in a, the latest fiat paradigm. And what we've grown up with, with US dollars, Australian dollars, Canadian dollars, it's not normal or sustainable when you look back through history, every time a central authority has controlled the money supply, whether it's a government, a bank, a church, it goes to zero. It's human nature. If something doesn't cost much to produce, then ultimately you'll produce a lot of it. And I think if you look at the underlying increase in the monetary supply since 1971, um, when the U.S. formally depegged from gold, it's been around seven, eight percent year on year. Yet we're told inflation's two percent. But the amount of dollars circulating in the economy are going up seven eight percent and we all understand that that has to remain exponential because of the amount of debt in the system because as soon as you pull it back enough you get this reflexive situation on the way down where debt gets called because the asset price isn't high enough as a result they're selling pressure on assets assets go down further triggers more margin calls on additional debt and you get that reflexivity on the way down. So the system needs to remain buoyant, and the system needs to ensure that the leverage can stay in there. Otherwise, it all um, unwinds. So I think you look at these periods of reacting to high CPI and inflation by raising rates, and to borrow a term, it has to be transitory. It, it simply has to, because even if you look at the numbers, the US government can't afford their interest bill at the current interest rate. They literally cannot afford it. So what are they going to do? Raise taxes? That's going to reduce economic activity, which will reduce taxes. It, it, it just it feels like it will revert at some point, but I would never hazard a guess as to when that would be. It could be a month, it could be a year, it could be two years.
1: Yeah, it almost seems like the like macro situation is becoming increasingly more unstable as time goes on, where like, we kind of have like March 2020 was just a crazy catastrophic granted it was maybe more pandemic or supply side induced but it was like a crazy downside then we saw the 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 result of that which was just massive monetary stimulus do you think that it's going to get like more volatile and the swings will get crazier and crazier or do you think this was just kind of like a temporary one-time thing and maybe we'll go back to more normal like two percent inflation instead of these crazy swings that we're kind of experiencing
0: yeah look it it's hard to know. It's, it's something that's all new to us. But the way I conceptually visualise it is through that leverage lens. If you've got a company with relatively low leverage, then the value of the equity in that is going to be less volatile than a business that is geared up 90%. So as the leverage increases over time, as you print more capital um, and the financialization of the world continues to accelerate... Then that feels like it's going to continue to exacerbate the ups and the downs. Um, I mean, people always love to say, "Oh, Bitcoin's a bubble; it's going to pop." And yeah, it has. It's had five or six bubbles, and eventually, people realise that it's um, it, it's a bubble in a short time frame, but it's not going anywhere. But if you go and look at the money supply, that's going parabolic. You know, I've had the numbers before; it's it, they've gone like a hundred x more um, over the last. Fifty years, so I, I think when you look at it through that lens, it does feel like the volatility in nominal terms, in terms of US dollars, um, is only likely to go one way, i.e., increase.
1: Yeah, I agree. Um, since you have traditional like capital markets experiment, experience, you worked at an investment bank. Um, why do you think that a lot of traditional finance may not be, you know, the largest Bitcoin bull still? I know, like you said, it's very volatile and it goes through obviously multiple price cycles, but why do you think the traditional finance type, Wall Street type uh, is is kind of slow to understand and and maybe adopt Bitcoin?
0: You, You don't want to believe it. You don't want to understand. You don't want, it's really mentally inconvenient to be forced to look at the system that you've operated in your entire life and say, hang on, this isn't the solid bedrock that I thought it was. Um, And I think over time, as people start to see cracks, they start to see flaws, they start to explore, well, hang on, where does this end with all this money printing? Um, I think that's how you see adoption and people's eyes start to open up as to where this all ends. And and people are busy. like People are going through their lives. They're making good money. Bankers are still getting really good bonuses. Why be distracted by something that challenges a worldview where clearly from your perspective, your worldview is really good. The banking system works, we're doing M and A, we're doing all these deals, we're getting paid really well. The incentive there to challenge yourself, which most people don't really want to do, isn't overly high, which I think is why in Bitcoin you tend to see a lot of intellectually curious people and you know, you follow it on Twitter and that curiosity spills over into all these other sectors and interests and it's fascinating to watch.
1: Yeah, completely. Um, what do you think will be the next catalyst towards the next Bitcoin bull run? Do you think it'll be macro situation changing? Do you think it'll be the 2024 having? What are your thoughts there?
0: Who knows is the short answer. Um, but the longer answer is that Bitcoin amazingly now feels relatively tied to macro, like there is a correlation there. And I think if you rewind, you know, a few years, even and forecasted that bitcoin would be all over bloomberg and people looking at it as tracking the nasdaq you go what like already like how are we there so that's amazing in and of itself because it just is indicative of the brand and the global awareness of what this asset is um and i think you know if and when the mac when the macro turns that's likely to bring a bid back to bitcoin and we've seen it you know the start to 2023 risk is starting to come back into the markets and naturally that is lifting Bitcoin. So does that lift it aggressively over the course of this year if the macro turns? Very possibly, Um, but you then think about April next year or whenever the halving event ends up um, taking place based on the block times, Um, you're then faced with that fascinating dynamic of the halving of the block reward. And the way I've explained it to people in the past is um, if you've got a market price which is seventeen thousand dollars, let let's call it um, being the current price today and you've got an annualized supply based on that bitcoin price of call it five billion dollars i'm making up the numbers i'm not smart enough to do it all on the spot then but almost by definition you've got five billion dollars of demand if the price is stable at seventeen thousand, five billion five billion dollars of supply based on the number of bitcoin released every 10 minutes it indicates there's five billion dollars of demand now, across the space of a ten-minute block next April, that five billion supply halves to two and a half billion. Now, that five billion of demand, like nothing's happened to that. Like there's been no external factor that's influenced people's view of Bitcoin as an attractive asset. So all of a sudden, what you've seen historically is three months, six months later, that supply shock really starts to bite. People go to buy another Bitcoin, and they're having to bid it up price starts ticking up, and then that kicks off the next cycle where it feeds on itself. You've got that reflexivity I mentioned earlier applying in reverse, whereas the price goes up, it becomes more attractive, more people pile in, price goes higher, and this is why you get those parabolic runs um, typically ending in a blow-off top. And I think that's probably likely to continue in the future largely because it's human nature.
1: Yeah, I agree. And I think Bitcoin's volatility is it's somewhat of a feature where, when an asset falls like 75%, like it has, the only people left holding at this point are like the people that really, like, believe in this technology and think it's like the world's best treasury asset. And if you're buying at the, these levels, you're probably not looking for you know a 10% return. You're gonna wait for the price to rip up a lot higher before you, you sell. And like you said, when the, the subsidy gets cut in half you're going to eliminate the weakest miners of the bunch. Those miners are no longer going to be selling Bitcoin on a day-to-day basis, and there's just less Bitcoin to be sold. So I think those are some great points. Yeah, Um, it's kind
0: of interesting. I'd I'd love someone to describe to me how you could bootstrap a new monetary asset and go from something that was worth a cent 12 years ago to $300 billion today without volatility. Yeah, I haven't had that explained to me yet.
1: Yeah, totally. And it's interesting to think about because Bitcoin is this absolutely scarce money, but it's like, okay, how do we go about distributing the Bitcoin to everybody? You want to keep it scarce, but you also want to distribute it over time. And it seems like mining through proof of work is the best way to, to bootstrap this monetary tool. Do you agree with that, I guess?
0: Absolutely. It was the fairest and the most equal way, if you work um, and provide tangible output, then you're entitled to receive some of the Bitcoin. And that's one of the distinguishing features around Bitcoin. If I had a criticism of Bitcoin, it may be that its scarcity is too scarce, where it may disproportionately benefit early adopters um, because the amount of new supply is becoming tighter and tighter. now that doesn't mean it's not going to be successful. In fact, it's correlated, It probably will be more successful because that supply gets tighter and tighter and it doesn't mean it won't happen. Um, but it is an interesting thought process where you end up with a lot of the wealth heard, held by the earlier adopters purely because they saw it coming before others.
1: Yeah, it is di- interesting to think about like the distribution schedule over time. I-, I always like to take it to the extremes where if there was like, you know, if Satoshi mined all 21 million in the first year, I don't think Bitcoin would have worked. It, there just would have been too few people holding it. Whereas with the halvings every four years, you know, maybe that was too short of a time. Maybe it was just right. It was kind of hard to know. I don't know. Do you think the do you think it should have been more than four years, or do you think it should have been less than four years, or, or any opinion there? No,
0: not not really.
1: Uh, I think and I think the volatility means that you
0: do get that distribution over time, like. Yeah, when you're getting 10 to 50 X moves every few years um, through these cycles, there's only a few people that could actually hold a big stack of their Bitcoin over a decade and actually absorb that wealth. So I think that naturally gets flushed down and distributed every cycle. Um, and you see the parabolic run up. Um, everyone's getting rich. All of a sudden it blows off. You get people like us in 2013 that bought on the way up, it crashes. You say silly magic internet money, you dump it on the way down. And all the early adopters that you know are still sitting on a 2030X, they probably sell a few. They buy their Lambos, they buy their yachts, etc. Price comes down, finds this floor um, where people are nibbling away and bottom drawing it. And eventually you get that next supply shock, which catalyzes another run
1: totally it definitely seems like a lot of the early adopters eventually end up with less bitcoin than they have uh, or than they started with for exactly those reasons i think that was was a great point last question um what's your like long-term bullish case for bitcoin like in my mind i see three potential scenarios one where it's digital gold and i kind of think that's like the bearish case two would be like a treasury asset where people are using it maybe to, to settle like a swift network and they're using it to store wealth. And then three is like the ultimate bullish case where Bitcoin is like a world currency. Where do you sit on that scale? Are you trying to take it more one step at a time?
0: Uh, to be honest, one step at a time, um, because you know, you look at gold, it's, it's such a good analogy or analog because gold derives its value through those monetary characteristics of transferability durability, scarcity, etc. And when you overlay Bitcoin's monetary attributes against that, it's an order of magnitude better. Uh, in a world where all these digital and social networks are disrupting their physical this the pathway from $17,000 today to $600,000 being the equivalent of gold's market cap being $12 trillion divided by 21 million. It's a really easy mental framework to get your head around and You don't need to believe anything more. Now, the reality is that Bitcoin could be a lot more. When you look at the financialization of the world and this money printing since 1970 of 7 8% year on year, people are forced to gamble with their savings. They're forced to go and buy real estate. They're forced to go and buy the NASDAQ. They're forced to take risk, pay all these advisors 1%, 2% fees. To get access to something that that will hopefully just preserve their purchasing power not even grow it so when you look at global real estate of you know 320 trillion dollars and you say well how much of that value in real estate is attributable to its value in use so its utility and ability to live in it and how much of it is used as a store of value i don't know but 320 trillion dollars is 17 million dollars per bitcoin so is there something between the 600000 and the $17 million that implies that Bitcoin has cannibalized a little bit of real estate's utility as a store of value? Because again, if you overlay Bitcoin as a store of value, it's more scarce, it's more transformable, it's more divisible, it's more liquid, um, etc. And you can work backwards through global bonds, you know, $120 trillion, physical money, $40 trillion. Uh, But there's a lot of unknowns in this world, and I just look at it as gold 2.0, 600,000 a coin versus 17,000 a coin. Gee whiz, if Bitcoin hangs around, it feels like you're on the right side.
1: Yeah, absolutely. 600,000 a coin would would do great for a lot of us. (laughs) Um, I think that's a great spot to end it, Dan. Uh, Where can people learn more about you and learn more about Iris Energy?
0: Yeah, look, I'm on Twitter, Dan Roberts, 0101, um, Iris Energy um, has got a handle as well, our website, um, we're a public company, we're not, we're not hard, to, hard to find, um, and you, if anyone would like to follow up, very happy to uh, engage further.